Good morning. It's always good to be with you again. Uh, Would you pray with me? God, as we prepare uh, to open your word, we ask that you would help us to open our hearts to hear what it is that you would have to say to each one of us. We believe in your Holy Spirit, and we believe that your Holy Spirit helps us to understand, to hear, and to see who it is that you are calling us to be because of your Son. And so we ask, God, I ask on behalf of each one of us that you would speak to us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading a story from the Gospel of Mark together. Uh, For many of us, this will be a familiar story. For others of us, this will be uh, brand new. I want to set the stage a little bit. Uh, We're we're nearing the end of Jesus' life and ministry. He's been noticed by the religious authorities and the political leaders in the area of, of Israel that at that time is ruled over, at least politically, by the Roman Empire. Uh, He's not just been noticed, but he is threatening those leaders. They feel afraid of his popularity with the common people in Israel at that time. And they're used to seeing what anybody else does with that kind of influence. And they are sure that he's getting ready to do something that threatens their positions, that threatens their power. Uh, And so they've now taken drastic action. And they have arrested Jesus, Caiaphas, the high priest one of the religious and political leaders in that area, is, is having some of his soldiers rough Jesus up, getting him ready for an interrogation, a, a kind of trial that in many ways, as we read it, is, is not true. It's a farce, but it's the excuse they're going to use to do whatever it is that they want to do to Jesus. And one of his closest friends and followers, Peter has decided that that at the very least he has the courage to stay close by when all of this is unfolding. And it turns out that deciding to be close by ends up being a dangerous decision to make. So open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're going to start reading together in verse 66, and I didn't misspeak. It really is verse 66 of chapter 14 in Mark. We find these words. Meanwhile, Peter was below in the courtyard. A woman, one of Caiaphas, the high priest's servants, approached and saw Peter warming himself by the fire. She stared at him and said, you were also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand what you're saying. And he went outside into the outer courtyard and a rooster crowed. The female servant saw him and began a second time to say to those standing around, this this man is one of them. But Peter denied it again. A short time later, those standing around again said to Peter, you must be one of them because you're also a Galilean. But he cursed and he swore and he said, I don't know this man you're talking about. And at that very moment, A rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered what Jesus told him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Mark tells us that he broke down, sobbing. At daybreak, the chief priests with the elders, legal experts, and the whole Sanhedrin formed a plan. 
they bound Jesus, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate, the, the Roman governor. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, that's what you say. The chief priests were accusing him of many things. Pilate asked him again, aren't you going to answer? What about all these accusations? But Jesus gave no more answers so that Pilate marveled. Now all four of the gospel writers tell this story. Not just the story of Jesus facing a trial in a makeshift courtroom, but also the story of Peter having a trial of his own in a darkened courtyard just a few feet away. And I think they tell this story, these two men having these different trials at basically the same time because they are facing the same question. Who are you? And they're being asked that question by people who already know or think they know the answer to that question. Right? It's not an honest, open, innocent question. It is a question that is an accusation. I think I know who you are. You confirm. You, you tell me that I'm right. And I dare you to tell me that I'm wrong. So, so let's take the story of Jesus' trial. Let's, let's take the moment where he is asked, who are you? And implied in that question, when, when Pilate says, who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? What he's really asking is, are you the same kind of leader I am, and do I need to be threatened by you? Now Jesus has been basically accused of this and asked this question over and over and over again in his ministry by all kinds of people because, again, as he moves through Israel and as he gathers more and more people as his followers, the people in power see this and they know the script. They know what happens when you, you get popular. They know what happens when you get a lot of people following you. You use it. You use those people as a means to an end to get whatever it is that you want. They've seen this movie before. They know what's going to happen next. And Jesus couldn't be less interested in living according to that script of power and force of will. And yet he's tired. I mean, he doesn't want to run the world. He, he wants the world to let him love every single person in it into being who they're supposed to be. Not through force, but by choice. If he wants to run the world, it doesn't look anything like anybody else has ever run the world before. And he's tired of trying to explain that difference. He, he just wants people to notice that difference. He wants people to see that he's not like any other leader they've ever seen. And that in fact, he's not leading in the sense of having some sort of, of army or, or some sort of group of people that he can force to do what he wants or get other people to do what he wants. He's, he's leading in the sense of leading by example. 
that there really is a different way, a better way to live, a life that's all about figuring out how to really care about other people more than you care about yourself, to really care about other people's needs more than you care about your own needs and your wants and your desires. He wants that to be what people see. But they refuse to see it. I mean, they notice that he's different. They they notice the amazing things that he's able to do because of that love, because of that willingness to give himself away for other people, but they want to benefit from it. They don't want to imitate it. They don't want to follow in that way. And so when Pilate says, are you a leader like I'm a leader? Are you going to threaten my leadership? Jesus gives a frustratingly brief answer. Now, it depends on your translation in terms of how it sounds and how flippant it might be to you or how much it seems like Jesus isn't really engaging. I think what he's trying to say when you boil it down is, when he's asked, are you a king? I think with a heaviness in his voice, he says, that's what everybody says. That's what you say. That's what everybody thinks. And I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting what everybody thinks. So if that's what you want to call me, that's what I am. Now, that is the truth. It is what people think. It is what people are calling him. And the reality is, if Jesus wanted to, he could do far more than threaten Pilate's power. He could take it away. If Pilate's asking, are you more powerful than I am? then the answer to that is absolutely yes. In John, the way Jesus says it is, look, nobody takes anything from me. Everything that is taken from me, I have freely given. And so there's this sense that Jesus says, look, if, if you're just asking if I'm more powerful than you, then the answer to that is yes. Are there more Jewish people whose hearts belong to me? The answer is yes. If that's what you're, you're really, all, all it is that you care about, then yeah. That's who I am. And he knows as soon as he says it that nobody's really going to listen to him. They're not really going to understand what he's saying. Because while that's the kind of person he could be, while that's the kind of leader everyone expects him to be, it's not who he is. And Peter knows that better than anybody else. Because Peter, during Jesus' life and ministry, pulls Jesus aside And says, would you quit telling everybody that you're going to die and give your life away for the sake of the world? Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to follow you there. Keep doing the miracles. Keep preaching all the good sermons. Force a few of the people to understand how powerful you are. Come on, show them, show off. And every time Jesus has that chance, he doesn't take it. Jesus doesn't force his will on anybody. It's always an invitation. It's always question. It's always an offer. Now sure, there's times in Jesus' ministry and in his relationships where he raises his voice out of anger and frustration, but he still doesn't force his way on anybody. It's not his way. And Jesus' closest friends and followers understand that better than anybody else. And they also understand the temptation that anybody watching Jesus would have to say, would you just take the world Because you can. Just take it. Use your power. 
to force everybody to be who you want them to be. I'm begging you, just be the kind of leader, the best version of, of, of all the leaders that we've seen in the world who think they know better than anybody else and they, they force their way. Just be the best possible version of that, please. Jesus says no. And so it doesn't make any real sense, if you know the story, if you've been paying attention, it doesn't make any real sense that Caiaphas or Pilate or anybody else would think that Jesus is actually a threat to them. Because he's had the opportunity for the last three years. From the moment of his first sermon, his first miracle, he could have taken over the world. But instead, he doesn't. And yet because they think they know what he's eventually going to do, because they think he's just like them, with the ability to do things they can't really do. They have these false fears, and they decide they're going to shoot now, and they'll ask questions later because they can't allow this threat to get any bigger, any stronger than it already is. The moment Jesus is arrested by Pilate, and then he's eventually accused of being an official disturber of the peace, which means that right after this passage, just a few verses later, Pilate's going to sentence Jesus and then, nine verses after that, Jesus will be hanging on the cross and dying for the sake of the world that he refused to run through sheer force of will. Now, in the midst of all this, you got to wonder where Jesus' friends are. Right? We know where Peter is. Where, where's everybody else? Where's the rest of the twelve? Well, they've run away as fast and as far as they can. Now... Before you and I get to a place in our hearts where we're really frustrated with them and we might judge them just a little bit for being cowards, you need to know Jesus anticipated this was going to happen and he actually forgives them in advance for their fearful actions before they're afraid. He says, you don't understand how, how dark it's going to get, how bleak it's going to feel. You don't understand just how scared you're going to be and you're all going to run away and I love you anyway. Right now, Peter, who's always, it seems, the most confident of the twelve, really can't handle this prediction. And he says to Jesus, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know me. If you think I'm going to run away from you or deny you, being your friend and your follower. And it's, it's easy to understand why Peter would be so offended at that thought. Wouldn't you wrestle with being offended if Jesus, even with love and care and compassion in his eyes, said to you, you're going to deny me, you're going you're gonna to betray me, you're going to run away from me? There'd be a part of you that would want to say, no, you can't be right. See, Peter believes that the fact, the two facts, right, that he is Jesus' friend and follower, those aren't two things that are just interesting about him. Peter is convinced that those are two of the most important things that define him. He is a friend and follower of Jesus before he's anything else, and he has convinced himself that he would die before he denied that. And yet, as Jesus' trial is unfolding, and as he tells a truth about himself that is misunderstood, and therefore will cost him his life, Peter starts to realize what's really at stake. 
And so while he's having his own trial in the courtyard, and he doesn't have the high priest questioning, questioning who he is, he's got somebody the high priest sent, right? You don't think it's just an accident that the servant of the high priest just sidles up next to him and starts looking at him carefully and then says, who are you? I know who you are. You're, you're his friend. You're with him. You know him. She's looking for somebody else to be not just in a trial in a courtyard, but to be in a real trial in a courtroom. She's looking for anybody she can to condemn, anybody she can to clean this mess up. And Peter knows that. He knows what's at stake. He knows that his life is suddenly on the line. And as heartbreaking as it was for him to realize that Jesus' life is on the line, something shifts deep inside of Peter when he realizes it's not just Jesus risking his life here. He's about to risk his life. And so, with that choice, embarrassingly, he falls apart. And he starts to deny who he really believes he is. He forgets it. He, he tries to bury it. He denies himself who he really is. And in denying who he really is, he also denies who Jesus really is. Who are you? I'm not who you think I am. Who are you? I'm not who I've claimed to be. Who are you? I don't understand what you're asking me. I don't know what you want from me. Leave me alone. Get away from me. Please. He doesn't buy it. He doesn't believe what he's saying to this servant girl and to this crowd that starts to, to figure out that they may be close to getting some more blood. He, he doesn't believe anything he's saying. But he hopes against hope that they will. Because his life depends on it. I mean, think about just how difficult this moment is. He's either got to admit who he really is and face the consequences. Or he's got to say whatever it is that he has to say to get through this moment and live another day. And hope that somehow there's life on the other side of this denial. Now, it's really easy for me in the comfort of my, my office or my study or the comfort of an auditorium to read a story like this and shake my head in disappointment at Peter's weakness. I mean, I wouldn't admit that to any of you except for I just did. Right? We, we wouldn't admit that to each other, that we think we know that we could do better if we happen to be standing in the same place that Peter's standing right now. But I'm pretty sure all of us, in hearing this story, there's a part of us that just thinks, I could have done better. I would have done better. I would have had the courage. I would have been brave enough. I would have been strong enough. But before we try to theorize about what we would have done, I think it's really important for us to reflect on what we've already done. Because there isn't really a doubt about this. We've all already had moments in our lives where someone walks up to us and asks us or demands that we do something or say something that denies who we really are trying to be as a follower of Jesus. 
We've all had those kinds of conversations. And in that moment, we have a decision to make, and it either reaffirms who we say we are or it denies who we say we are. Trials of our true identity, tests of our our real character, rarely come to us in a form as obvious as Peter's courtyard interrogation. People almost never walk up to us and directly threaten us and ask us with accusing eyes if we're a follower of Jesus. I mean, in our nation, at this time in the world, it is not a legal crime for us to follow Jesus. No authority is going to come and arrest you because of where you happen to go to church. Which means that our true character, who we really are, is tested. But it's tested in all kinds of small ways that we never see coming. It's it's obvious that when you talk to people who aren't yet Christians, when you listen to people who don't share our faith, whether that's in conversation or whether that's on television or whether that's in interviews or whatever, it's obvious that everybody in this world, whether they're a Christian or not, is used to the fact that every Christian they've ever met at some point or another who says, I want to be a friend and follower of Christ, has done some very unchristlike things when push comes to shove. We all know it. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows that all of us, while we have this pursuit in our heart of trying to follow Jesus, of trying to be a friend to Jesus, of trying to be the kinds of people who imitate Jesus, all of us know that in that pursuit, right alongside of it, are other pursuits we have that at times come in direct conflict with what it means to follow Jesus. And we all have these these crisis moments where we then have to decide if I have to choose between being who I promised God I'm going to be or pretending I don't understand the question or I don't understand what's at stake or I'm just going to be forgetful for a little while and then I'm going to get whatever it is I want that I'm desperate to have in the moment. If I get through that moment, then I'll ask God for forgiveness for my spiritual forgetfulness later and it'll all be okay. Except that in the meantime... We deny our very selves, the truth about who we really are and who we want to be. And we don't just break our hearts. We don't just damage our lives, but we end up breaking other people's lives, damaging their souls. Because we say we're one thing. But when the stakes are really high, we forget conveniently who we've said we're going to be. Like Peter, we find that as long as not too many people are watching, we might just be willing to deny the fact that we have a personal relationship with Jesus that is turning us into people who are more and more like Jesus. And in this case, Peter's life is on the line. In most of our cases, It's not that our life's on the line, it's our quality of life that's on the line. I mean, it's hard to get ahead in this world without breaking a few rules along the way. And whether or not we're always willing or able to admit it, nearly all of us at least partly follow Jesus because of what we hope he can get us. Right? We we love Jesus not only because of how beautiful and amazing and holy 
Jesus is himself. That's true, but it's not the whole truth. We've also fallen in love with Jesus because of how Jesus can make us feel and the things that Jesus can help us get. And in our attempt to receive before we give, we end up failing to remember that in agreeing to follow Jesus, it's not just that we're trying to benefit from Jesus' way of life. We really are trying to follow in Jesus' footsteps. We're trying to live the way he did, the same way he did, for the same reasons he did. Not our reasons, not our strategies, not our angles, but Jesus' reasons. And that we want to be people who don't just pay lip service to living out of love for the sake of other people, but we would want to live lives that are so marked by that love that anybody could see it and ask us, why are you so different? Why aren't you manipulative? Why, why don't you shade the truth? Why don't you force your own way? In the most extreme, what this means is that following Jesus, I mean really following Jesus, could cost you your life in the most extreme. But at the very least, it means that following in the way of Jesus is going to cost you a version of your life. That while it may be attractive, and while you may be tempted to think that that's what your life should be about, you say, no, of all the other versions of life I could choose, I'm choosing this one. No matter what it costs me, what that means is I can promise you, you will certainly live a life where you are taken advantage of and walked over. And it won't be because somebody demands that they get to do that. It'll be because you choose like Jesus chose over and over and over again the way of love in the face of hate. The way of love in the face of power. The way of love in the face of ambition. The way of love in the face of whatever it is that you know in your life has nothing to do with God's love. It's difficult. It's hard. Because I don't think we always think about this, but we've made a promise in following Jesus. We have promised to live lives of downward mobility, not upward mobility. See, everybody thinks they understand who Jesus is simply because they grasp what Jesus could theoretically do. Because they know how people are. And leaders may be a lot of different things, but when you boil it down, leaders are people. They have the same longings that anybody else has. They have the same hopes. They have the same selfish struggle going on in the deepest parts of who they are. And when you get an edge, when you get power, when you get influence, it seems like we're hardwired to find a way to go up the ladder. Jesus has that opportunity every second of every day. And instead of moving up that ladder, Jesus chooses in a way that doesn't make sense to anybody else around him, including his friends and followers. He chooses to go down the ladder, to use less force, to use less power the way everybody else uses power, 
to be less important, to take roles of less importance. Now, none of that changes who he truly is. He is the Son of God. He is the bright and morning star. He is the beginning and the end. But he refuses to move through the world with all of that on his name tag. He refuses to use any of that to his own advantage. Are we willing to do the same? I have noticed that it used to be easy for preachers or other people in church to point out quickly that every time they do any sort of a study and they're asked to describe Christian people, what people outside of the church say is that we're judgmental. You know, I'm guessing you've heard those stats over and over and over again. And we've all had moments in our lives both inside and outside of the church with people who are not Christians, but we've also had times with Christian people where we would say that more than anything else, for whatever reason, those people were coming across as judgmental. I get it. But I don't think Christians are the only people with a judgment problem. What I worry about is how we use power. What I worry about is how often it seems like When we think we're losing official roles of power in the world, we think the world's coming to an end. When every time our Lord and Savior was offered an official place, he chooses something else. He chooses to serve. He chooses not to speak. He chooses to listen. And Jesus was all kinds of things that we are. In fact, Jesus even had moments of being afraid. You remember that moment in the garden where he's begging God, please don't let this happen to me. He's afraid. But what Jesus never does, that you and I, I think, do all the time, Jesus never lets his fear call the shots in his life. He never lets his fear, what somebody else might do in an official position of power, to define who he is and how he behaves. Brothers and sisters, I'm tired of Christians being the most afraid people in the world. Stop being afraid. Stop. I'm afraid that when we give ourselves over to being afraid, that what we're saying is we don't really believe, ultimately, that God has the power to shape the rest of our story. Don't you believe God has the power to shape the rest of our story? And don't you believe that even if it looked like it was going to end in death, it will never end in death because our story ends and begins and continues in resurrection? Peter lets his fear overtake him. And it causes him to act in ugly ways and say ugly things and and live in such a way that nobody would want to be like Peter in that moment. Peter doesn't want to be like Peter in that moment. I want us to move through this world with the confidence, the resurrection confidence that Jesus moves through the world with. The good news is this. While we've all had our courtyard moments, and if you're going to live more than, I would say, two or three days past today, you're going to have a courtyard moment again. The good news is that God refuses to take us at our word when we're at our weakest. He doesn't blindly believe us when we say that we don't want to have 
people know that, that we're in a personal relationship with his son. One of my favorite things about this story is it doesn't end here. Peter is given more than one opportunity to take back his betrayal, his denial, to, to undo the untrue things he does and says in that courtyard. And you and I, brothers and sisters, we are given the same gracious second and third and fourth chances. Our true identities, our, our real characters, aren't the result of one bad or even one good decision. We build who we are with God's help through a lifetime of decisions. The question then is, what direction are your daily decisions taking you in? Are, are you moving closer or farther away from being a better and more faithful friend and follower of Jesus? For the next month, we're going to be looking at who we really are and who we're truly trying to become. Now, that's different from who we say we are and who we claim we're trying to become. I want us to be really honest here about the kinds of choices and decisions we make and, and who that makes us now and who that's shaping us to be in the future. Is your life, your decisions, every, every day that you make those choices, are, is your life really about becoming more and more like Jesus or is it becoming more and more some version of you that may or may not resemble Christ, but a version of you that has everything you really want? You could call it a series on integrity because what we're going to be talking about is when we have these moments, have we already done the work the spiritual work, the, the soul work that we need to do in order to be prepared for wh wherever we are, whether that's here or work or home or even in times of fun and fellowship, are we consistently the same person? Or do we change our values and our behaviors like a set of clothes based on where we happen to be? So many of us have different versions of ourselves that are ready at a moment's notice to help us fit in or get ahead or win. But is that who you really are at your core? Is it who you really want to be? Only you can answer those kinds of questions for yourself. And my prayer is that as we journey through this series together, that each of us will find ways through God's help to get one step closer and one step closer and one step closer on this journey of really understanding who we can, can be. I mean, who we really can be, who, who we truly can become if we allow God's self-giving love to shape everything about our lives. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, some shepherds and their their wives will be just outside of these double doors. They're there to pray with you, to talk with you, to be community for you. And so if you came this morning with any concern at all, any, any conversation at all that you'd like to share with a Christian couple or you'd like to pray about, as we sing this next song, just, just get up and go and talk with them and pray with them. We really want to be a, a community of faith that holds each other up. To go to them as together we stand and sing.